Welcome to Insert Title Here, the podcast that doesn't have a title because leaders don't need a title. And every single week, we at the Harvey Nash Group are going to get some leaders together to talk about the biggest issues facing technology. And in the first six-week run of this show, we're going to be talking all about sustainability. So what's on this week's show? We're going to be talking about the Californian housing crisis and how 3D printed houses may offer a solution. We're going to be talking about fish fraud. Yes, fish fraud. And then we're going to finish off with a quick uh, article about how Brazil are trying to sue Apple over the lack of charging units. My name is David Savage. I'm the Group Technology Evangelist at the Harvey Nash Group. Enjoy the show. So welcome to today's show. I'm lucky to be joined by three more guests, a guest co-host and two external guests. Uh, very quickly, Will, Will Richardson, tell us a little bit about yourself. Brilliant. Thanks for putting on the spot first off. Um, <laughs> I run an environmental management consultancy. You may have seen us on the news work recently. Um, we work with people like Blackbird Video, the Advertising Association, and a um, variety of other organizations to help them become more environmental, looking at the services organizations offer. We also have a carbon reporting software that helps you manage, understand, and benchmark your environmental footprint. I've been doing this for about 20 years now, so I'm quite embedded into the space. I'll make sure that we, we've got links in the show notes if anyone is interested to find mm. out more. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and then Mark Lancelot from PA. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Mark. Yeah, hi everybody. So Mark Lancelot, uh, I work at PA, we're an innovation consultancy. Uh, spent the last five or six years focusing in on sustainability. So I've been leading our efforts since about 2015 in that space. So we do from sustainability strategy, transformation, but also hands-on uh, technology and product development and design out of our tech capabilities in the UK and the US. Cool. And then last but by no means least, Renali, uh, my colleague out in the States. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me here, David, and especially doing this at nine, which is not so early. So thank you. Uh, yeah. My name is Renali Patia. I'm with Harvey Nash for the last three years. I'm the manager of recruiting here. Uh, as you Already might know Harvey Nash is a UK headquartered recruiting agency, but we've been in the United States for the last 11 years. And what I do essentially is partner with startups and with the established firms, uh, and we hire talent for them. So I give people a job for a living, and I absolutely love it. Um, yeah, and just stoked to be doing this and talking about different angles around sustainability and environmental friendly projects because a lot of our clients are obviously thinking in that realm uh, and with 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 the company that just got the 3d printing uh, assignment in california they're also a series b company that's actually based out of oakland that's where i'm from in california so very interested to be a part of this and talk about them in so a little let, more detail let's start there uh, this is an article in The Guardian about 3D yeah. printing. Future of housing, California desert to get America's first 3D printed neighborhood. Um, how bad is the housing crisis? You're, you're living out there. I mean, we talk about the British housing crisis all the time and, uh, and generation rent. Um, I kind of always assume there's lots of space in the States and it's not such a problem. No, my gosh, Dave, it is a struggle because San Francisco being the main city around the Bay Area is exorbitant rent. 
I mean, for 700 square foot apartment, you would have to pay anywhere over 3,500 to $4,000 4, um, per month. Um, I think that with a project like this, it's interesting because in the Bay Area, granted, there's everybody who earns a reasonably good amount of money, right? So we don't really specifically think that the gentry is middle class because a huge portion is actually upper middle to wealthier class. Just given the access of opportunities here, entrepreneurship, the fact that you can literally rent a little space, a co-working space and run your own business, there's so many ways to make money. The bidding war is insane in California and especially in the Bay Area because even if even if there are households that earn reasonably well, given their credit scores in the United States, they actually can get access to heavier loans. So that puts them into looking at housings that are like 800,000 to 1, 1 million, 1. 1.5 million. So, and people end up taking the mortgage for about 30 years. So it's, it's a struggle because everybody is bidding for houses, especially during pandemic times. Um, and, and very few houses in the in inventory. There's lots of buyers out there. For the last two years, we've witnessed crazy amounts of pressure and turmoil within the housing market. I, first-hand experience it too because we lost our bids for two houses and finally got one for the third and moved in last year and now I'm seeing this with reasonably housing prices but it scares me because I feel that technology should be used to reach out and sort of solve the purpose and, and uplift a city right I think that the homeless situation in San Francisco and LA is insane. We've had lots of struggles because people that are investing a lot of money buying houses outside, it's just, it's not gentrified. There's a lot of homeless people. And unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, they should get access to this. This is reasonable for them. If, if we use technology and we start creating products like this, one is structural integrity. I mean, do you even know if the 3D house is going to, you know, uphold its foundation five, 10 years down the line, what their prices are going to look like? Um, and then you're taking away jobs from the construction crew, mm -hmm. which is their livelihood and their specialist expertise. So there's so many thoughts and ideas that come to my mind. And I think the underlying thought is fear because I feel like the wealthier will be the first people to get access to these reasonably yeah. priced houses. And that takes away from the purpose of actually reaching out to people that really need one. So sorry, long-winded monologue. Mm. <laughs> no, we're touching on 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 plenty of points. Um, not sure who else would like to jump in, but I will. I, I mean, I know that you look at kind of corporate buildings and offices and and think about their carbon footprint and think about how that maybe maybe people might uh, reduce their carbon footprint. Rally makes the good point that these are these are houses that can be put together quite quite cheaply, quite quickly, but we don't know necessarily how green they are. I would hazard a guess they possibly are going to be more green because they're not you. We worked with um, event companies on building event spaces, so temporary structures. And one of the things that we've been pushing and has been pushed is 
actually having almost prefab, um, pre-made stuff. So therefore, there's less wastage when you're building stuff. Right. So that would absolutely be coming into it, wouldn't it? And if it's more cost-effective, it you mentioned, you know, that it is the more wealthy people at the beginning that, mm-hmm. but actually, in the long run, it will be they will be able to roll it out more efficiently to people that can afford it less, I guess. Yeah, and just picking up on the the events business, so we did some work with a company EKB a couple of years back. So chap who was running a quite successful events management business, but you know, in in the world where you could go to conferences, you know, when when everyone goes away, a lot of the a lot of the stands and materials gets trashed out the back or burnt. So very wasteful business. So can he move to this? circular business you know use 3d printer in a facility using green energy and electric vehicles but then using sort of plastic feedstock uh, as a way to produce these stands and it had a you know, great look and feel to them so you'd work with a corporate client you know uh, do a stand they'd use it for a year then you could take it back grind it down and make another one so you know very interesting model from a sustainability perspective but also creates very powerful narrative for the brands that show you know um here's what i'm doing you know you can argue over it's kind of moving into kind of greenwash but it was kind of a way of sort of evidencing that in this space that they were trying to to do something different and, and show show how it works here's something if, if 3d printing if you know the materials that are being used maybe if you get bored of your house um in five years time you could have it reformatted into a i don't know yeah. into, into another house or you know how old, older people uh you as you go through because you have kids you get bigger houses and then when you get older the kids leave so you get smaller houses you could buy your plot of land and then live in your house and change your house to suit you <laughs> yeah. wow wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> and you know i i also believe in in like feng shui and vastu and and how that impacts things so maybe it's a good time in my year to like have a north entrance and then a good time in my year to have a south yeah. entrance and that's a lovely idea <laughs> I, was, I was just gonna say i love the concept of it and i love what both mark and uh, well what you're both saying when i read the article it didn't strike me as necessarily being uh, housing to solve the crisis of, of so many homeless people there are talking about kind of they all come with swimming pools and you can have yeah. outdoor showers and fire pits yeah. and cabanas fitted in sounds very much not for the middle but uh if you if you take the idea of 3d printing there could be some really interesting ways of using it but 10 times less waste than conventional construction yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we're seeing, we know, a few sort of modular housing companies in the UK who are trying to do off-site production and largely you get to site and you assemble it, so it's much quicker. So it becomes a, you know, a cheaper way of doing it. And in theory, you can use sustainable materials, tailor it to it, so it's more effective, which is all, all great and good. But, you know, in, in the UK, particularly, the, the, big, the big issue around housing is the existing stock. You know, all the kind of drafty old houses where there's got to be a huge effort to, to decarbonize those and do some real deep retrofit rather than sticking some PV panels on the roof and a little bit of insulation. And I think that that's the kind of big sustainability challenge. So how do you how do you enable that? How do you finance it? How do you make it attractive for someone who's moving into a house to potentially spend a lot of money that might have quite a long payback? 
Um, and I think that's where you're going to start to move away from the tech solutions, but also think about the business model solutions. So how can you how can you finance it? Can you attach the, the the finance to the house rather than to the person? And how do you kind of reflect it in the value of the house when it gets sold? And if you can crack some of those things, I think some of these existing technologies really come into play, and we kind of start to make some leaps forward to, mm. to kind of decarbonize in the right way. The other thing the article says is um, that the printers are set to build a house overnight. And as we all know, that we're we're on track for a really bad energy crisis in the UK. Um, and so, therefore, is that not a good thing? Because we could be driving um, energy during the night. So we're building our houses at night when we le- need the energy least. So we're kind of dissipating our energy model across. Yeah. By the way, just on Mark's point, you know, I used to rent. I'm very lucky that I was able to buy recently. Talk about old period properties, drafty. Landlords don't care. Um, my landlord wasn't, wasn't I don't think, atypical of landlords. It was drafty. It had sash windows. They were single glazed, drafty in the floorboards. We had the heating cranked up the entire time because otherwise it would have been freezing. Our carbon footprint was probably horrifically bad in that in that property and the vast majority of them are rented out and probably have the same issues and and the people who own them don't care mm. yeah anyway real problem. real problem uh right okay uh will you mentioned that the three articles i've picked out are all quite random uh and with that we're going to be moving on to fishing um and fish fraud so fish fraud has long known to be a problem worldwide because seafood is amongst the most internationally traded food commodities often through complex and opaque supply chains it's highly vulnerable to mislabeling i had absolutely no idea about this by the way much of the global catch is transported from fishing boats to huge uh transshipment vessels for processing where mislabeling is relatively easy and profitable to to carry out this is an article that is um basically saying that out of uh, an analysis of 44 studies found that nearly 40% of 9,000 products from restaurants, markets, and fishmongers were mislabeled. Mm. Uh, this, I just found it fascinating. Love this, yeah. And where, where I was, where I went to it straight away was a, a, a fish identification app. You know, it must be easy to make that because you know you can get them for for food, for, for all sorts of things. So you know, train up a database, have a little app on your phone. You're at the restaurant or you're buying and you can tell you can tell whether it's a snapper or, or whatever other fish it is. So it's an idea to start up there. <laughs> That's such a great idea, Mark. That's exactly what came to my mind as well. Why aren't we using artificial intelligence to create a database to now identify products instead of being cheated? Then you know it's it's about time we're using AI for everything else. Well you heard it first. But you two going to business <laughs> together then, are you? <laughs> the, the article talks about using DNA testing, which, you know, feels a little bit overkill for what they were trying to do. Um, yeah. And, and you were saying, you know, this this whole piece around, you know, food provenance is clearly, mm-hmm. there's lots of startups in that space. It's yeah. in the big brands have recognised how important that is to their narrative, to the brand narrative and to consumers. So... I don't quite know how you pitch it into retail or into into restaurants. So it depends who's who's doing the fraud, isn't it? So if it's happening at the restaurant face, we don't want you to do that. But if it's further back of the supply chain, there must be ways of identifying that. Yeah, I mean, I found it fascinating because, you know, when you talk about a, a fish app, it kind of makes it sound like it's accidental, but I hadn't realised it was, you know, 
fraudulent. You know, so many opportunities along the supply chain to falsely label low-value fish as high-value species or farmed fish as wild, um, said Beth Lowell, who's the deputy president for the U.S. campaigns at Oceana. Um, provenance is we, – we, we think of provenance when we think of art and diamonds and, you know, increasingly we're talking about NFTs around mm. – um, blockchain being used for for the trading of things like tweets but here's a real world problem i remember going to a conference a couple of years ago at cambridge university i felt wildly out of my comfort zone but with a whole load of people who were talking about there's no real case examples for for blockchain um out there here's one that surely this would be brilliant for proving well you know what what actually is this catch what does it contain so now i know of a UK startup called Provenance that, that was doing this and they, they did a pilot with the co-op, the tuna, so tracking it back so you could see where it was from, so whether it was kind of caught, sort of wild caught and in what conditions, so and, and dolphin friendly tuna, I think that's what it was about. So, so I think there are some, you know, pilots and companies have done it. I think there's a lot of, some of the challenges kind of chain of custody and tracking the paperwork as much as mm. you know, a bit more complex and just a little app to take the picture of your fish, I think, unfortunately. Oh, that, that reminds me, actually, I met Will at, um, at Web Summit and the same Web Summit that we met, Will, actually, I spoke to a company that, that told me that a huge amount of planes, plane parts were actually um, fraudulent, mislabeled plane parts because the supply chain was so opaque. Oh, wow. <laughs> An astonishingly high percentage of plane parts just went missing in the in the supply chain, and they just kind of replaced it with other bits. And that blockchain could be used to sort that out. Well, there you go. I mean, that's possibly why Boeing's having such a load of problems with some of their parts. Then, <laughs> crazy, crazy. We're talking about sustainability. We're talking about the environment. Um, how does this provenance of fish come into sustainability? Well, surely, surely, if you can, I mean, there is a problem with overfishing. Mm -hmm. uh, surely, this this would enable quotas and more accurate uh, reporting of actually what's been taken from our seas. If you could apply some kind of provenance and proper audits to what's going on in the oceans, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes complete sense. That makes complete sense. That that was. I know. I know. It's quite a random one to include, but I thought it was fascinating and. I guess that's where my angle was coming from. I, I can really see that there's, with with a planet under the pressure that it's in, in the oceans, you know, people kind of, I remember watching a thing a couple of years ago with, with Attenborough saying that by the middle of the century, we could literally have no fish left in the seas. Mm. Uh, and, you know, with Brexit and, and the fisheries and quotas being so high on the agenda, surely it's time for something like this to to play a role in, in actually making sure that, that it's properly tracked and 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 mm. um, regulated. How likely is it to be able to happen? I mean, I'll, I'll, do, Matt, Mark, um, are you do, like? Do you think we're possibly able to track the provenance of fish at the moment? Uh, I'd, I'd have thought so. Yeah. So I mean, I know of, I know of quite a few examples in in sort of food, sort of agriculture. So a lot of the kind of you know from farm to fork. Uh, whether that's you know particularly on you know difficult foods and ingredients like soy and things like that so I know there's people doing tracking of that using blockchain and chain of custody uh, as you say it's been it's been used for kind of higher value items I think the technology is there it's some of the the will to make it happen and to kind of work right down the supply chain 
and to think about how you incentivize the right behaviors around it. So, so again, it, it's a matter of time, I think. And I'd, I'd be quite honest, I'd be surprised if there's not people working on it right at the moment. Right. Maybe we'll try and see if there are for comment. Uh, we'll get someone to mm. see if we can dig them out. And when we post this, see if see if anyone wants to to, to reply uh, on LinkedIn or so on. Mm. Um, right. Look, one last story, uh, a quick one to finish on. Well, though maybe maybe it won't be quick. Uh, you might go into this in more detail than I thought necessarily. But this is from The Verge. Brazil regulator finds Apple $2 million for not including charges with the iPhone 12. And I found this quite interesting because um, I was talking to uh, Samsung not too long ago, and I've always thought it was a bit cheap of of phone companies to stop including charges. And they said, oh, well, no, it's from a sustainability point of view because you've all got charges all around the house. So we don't want to keep giving you new ones and, and creating more and more problem with all this plastic all over the place. Mike and I went, oh, yeah, fine. That makes sense. Yeah, all right. I'm 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 being short-sighted. Uh, but then the article points out that the counter-argument could be that it's just um, profiteering from Apple. And perhaps this is not really a, a, a move driven by sustainability, but it's a move driven by smaller packaging and therefore um, d- driving down their, their profit margins. Um, do you think it really matters if it is if the end product is something more sustainable? I'd like to understand their supply chain to know that actually where the phones are being made and the materials going into the um, phones are actually being made sustainably. I think if we saw an open source, open um, supply chain where we could actually see full audits, then yes, I would probably agree. I think it probably is more environmental. But I don't think we have faith in Apple's supply chain yet to know that actually everything that comes from Apple is, is good. I mean... I'm not sure if many people actually trust Apple as a company from a sustainability point of view. They, they have done a few things. I mean, it, it's clearly it's kind of lighthouse project stuff rather than at scale. Uh, but they've started selling refurbished products. That they, they had their two robots, and if you saw them, there's I think it's Liam and Lisa that sort of can dissemble an iPhone in like five or ten seconds. So there's some quite cool videos of how it works. But you know, it's probably still in the margins rather than the mainstream. But I mean, for me, the big issue is, you know, all of this electronic stuff we get and, you know, a lot of it ends up in drawers and just wasted. So, and just sat there. So it's this circular economy concept around how, how can we make sure the materials and things we make uh, and take out the ground that we actually use them rather than just leaving them idle and getting more out. So how do you find ways of either not giving people things they don't need or when they've used them, how do you get them back and get some more more use out of that value? And the thing that was interesting with the story for me was, you know, here's something that's potentially more sustainable and uh, reducing costs. So you think, oh, that's a win-win. Uh, but from a consumer experience, they kind of feel short-changed because they haven't got something or maybe they've not had some choice around it. So it's a lot of the companies we talk to in the consumer sector it's how do you kind of create a better experience that's more sustainable at the kind of same kind of cost is the the difficult thing they're trying to solve Mm. and this way they've sort of missed missed the trick potentially by by not giving control or taking something away without replacing it in some way has has everyone heard of fairphone out of interest yeah 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 yeah. one of my colleagues worked on it talking to Amelia today uh, a few years back I mean, Apple are continuing. I mean, their profits, I think, have gone through the roof again in the pandemic, like lots of the big tech companies. I mean, 
It's a shame. I suppose it's down to consumer education, right? If, if people don't know that there's alternatives out there, if they're interested in circular economy and whatever else, it's great that everyone on this call has heard of has heard of Fairphone. Although I'd imagine that two sustainability consultants might. Um, but I suppose it's it's getting more of that um, ethos and more of that kind mm. of mentality into consumers, right? R- rather than necessarily worrying about a charger here or there like there are alternatives out there for recyclable modular phones where you can replace and upgrade parts yeah but you know apple always came in with with that tagline right if you don't have an iphone you don't have an iphone i think they're catering to a whole different audience here which sort of is so conflicting because on one hand you're not giving a charger so how are you converting the androids to an ios user they'll if this is their first switch they will need a charger it's something as basic as consumer experience so i don't think that there was a lot a lot of thought put into this because if you want to be sustainable then maybe you could come up with another campaign where you say as an organization we're taking back chargers if you're not using them we understand that basis our user research there's everybody has five chargers at home and these are the the inherent the apple users so to be sustainably aware we could take back chargers recycle it and then there's you know so it's more environmental friendly but at least let's give a charger to the ones that are newly investing in an iphone i think it's bizarre and i wish i was i wish i suit them and i thought of this cuz mm-hmm. it really doesn't yeah or, <laughs> or why not Apple just switch to a USB-C? Like all yeah. the other phones, you know, mm. if they're so keen on the environment with their chargers and they want to get rid of their chargers, great. Don't have a bespoke <laughs> Apple charging cable. Have one that most other companies use in the world. I don't know. I I think it's greenwash, personally. Lightning cable. Yeah. Yeah. Bollocks. Sorry. Yeah, me. Too. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I agree. I have, I have an Android phone, but I have a, a MacBook Pro, and the amount that they charge you for the little dongles to connect into mm. everything else that works universally is criminal. It's nuts. And I have four chargers at home. Granted, I'm one of those consumers, and I would love Apple to take it back because I do feel like maybe there's it's better for the environment if you just recycle it and I'm and my dog's not chewing on it you know what I mean yeah the take back thing's really hard so there's a couple of startup scale-ups we've worked to and they've worked so hard to to find a proposition and it all comes down to is we'll say we say we really care about these things but actually we're a bit lazy and Unless you make it so, so super easy, you'd have to think about it. It doesn't happen. So, you know, you've got to find a way of, you know, incentivizing people when they're, you know, when they're upgrading to kind of give it back and sending someone around to the house to pick it up. If you do that, it'll happen. Otherwise, it's, you know, yeah, I'll get around to it and it's in the drawer and it stays in the drawer and nothing happens. Yeah. Well, look. Uh, that that brings us to the end of today's show. So I want to thank you all for your time and uh, and sharing your thoughts on the three articles. Um, I'll make sure that we uh, tag you all in our social posts. Um, but just in case anyone wants to get in touch, uh, very quickly, Will and Mark. Will, what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you? William at greenelement.co.uk. Perfect. And Mark? Yeah, mark.lancelot at paconsulting.com. And Rilali, uh Thank you for joining us from the States and representing the group there from Harvey Nash. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave.